Today's Tribcast is presented by the Holdsworth Center. Investment in education equals economic prosperity. The Holdsworth Center presents Elevate Ed, Education in the Economy. Register now at holdsworthcenter.org. And Texas A&M University. It takes dedication and commitment to develop lifelong learners who become our leaders of tomorrow. See what makes Texas A&M University fearless on every front at fearlessfront.com. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys love. Jim Olson here on the campaign trail for the Texas Commissioner of Agriculture. Now here's some tall tales on this week's Tribcast from your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, April 18th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly podcast on the biggest stories in Texas politics and policy. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And in a moment, you'll see demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Uh, we're also joined for this first segment by Democratic congressional candidate Rick Trevino. You get a piece from him. We'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please go ahead and send them our way. Um, so, Rick, you are facing Gina Ortiz-Jones in the May 22nd runoff election for the chance to go head-to-head with Republican Congressman Will Hurd in November. Why you and not her? Well, I think it's because of the historical moment that we're looking at. Um, I think what people are looking for is uh, people that have real uh, ideology, people that have real beliefs. Uh, I've been... I think what I bring to the table is consistency on the issues that are politically chic, I guess. Um, you know, I was there in 20, well, when I first ran into Bernie Sanders back in 2012, that's when I learned about a lot of these ideas that I'm campaigning on. And I've been an advocate, at least at the local level in, in, in San Antonio, around a Medicare for all, living wage, recalling universities, um, you know, and getting big money out of politics, combating climate change, and aggressively moving away from fossil fuels. And those have been, you know, they weren't as politically popular as they are now. I mean, Bernie Sanders would introduce a Medicare for all bill yearly, and you didn't see that many co-sponsors, but this year he, he submits it, and you get people like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, Christine Gildrand, and, and they're supporting this idea, not because they believe in it, but because it's politically popular. I think it's polling well, and if they want to be politically viable in the future, I think they're reading the writing on the wall. And I think what people have to... And I think Gina, I've been critical about her consistency on the issue, mainly because of the opportunities she, she has had to talk about them. She's gone from saying Medicare for all single payer to saying access and affordability. And you know, if you're in front of the MSNBC right before the State of the Union in these big moments and ask directly about health care, if you are really an advocate for Medicare for all, you talk about it. And also, you don't talk about it in terms of national security. You talk about it as a moral issue. So it seems that. A lot of people are arriving to these issues um, because of uh, because it's politically popular, and I think what I'm going to be able to do against Will Hurd is um, create a good bright lines on issues. Uh, I think for I think voters need to to be be shown clarity, and a lot of the issues that Will Hurd kind of um, runs on, you know, yeah, he has a very conservative voting record, 96, 97 percent, depending on who you ask. But on those flashy issues, he really is a moderate. So on the issues that people really interact with politically, he kind of flirts with moderate, you know, 
center center left type of politics sometimes. And I think it's because he's got good instincts. He understands the dynamics of the district. He understands that Trump isn't popular. So if we send Gina Jones, we're going to send a candidate that, in my opinion, shares some positions with Will Hurd on a few issues. Um, and then also, the people that are present in Gina's race haven't shown to have a good track record. And I'm talking about the DCCC there. I think when the DCCC enters a race, they pull the strings. And in the last two cycles, they've been pulling the wrong strings. And I mean, how can Hillary Clinton win a district and then the Democratic candidate lose? I think it, it shows the DCCC's failings. And I think it's inappropriate that they're entering uh, Democratic runoff early, but it's kind of how I see it. Isn't this a centrist district? I mean, you had a centrist, you know, you had a conservative Democrat succeeded by a moderate Republican. Yeah. Um, is there an audience for anything here but a centrist? And I would just add to that. I mean, you're somebody who's called Goldman Sachs fucking evil and yeah. tweeted that neoliberalism fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than the Beto O'Rourke <laughs> movement of cursing a lot in, <laughs> in public, are you too liberal for this district? I don't think so. And I, and I was saying that tug-in-cheek because I, I was amused to see that Beto get covered, and even Gina get covered when they cursed, and it was like, ooh, they're so edgy, they're <laughs> cursing. But really, what they're, they were just cursing. They really weren't talking about anything, and if I'm gonna curse, well, let me curse about something that's real. And I yeah. think you see Goldman Sachs, who is a donor to the DCCC, I do think that they're inherently evil, and the actions that they've done from the OA crash, they damage a lot of people's lives, and they still are politically powerful, and are still big funders to both parties. Right. Um, when I talk about neoliberalism, I'm talking about a failure of a system that has led to a bleak future for people like myself and uh, the elders. You know, I, I graduated in the fall of 2008, and uh, you know, capitalism failed for me. And uh, we're looking at a bleak economic outlook, and I just don't understand why we have to run back the same policies and approaches, um, you know, because they haven't worked. And you, you mentioned that this. You know, it's described as a conservative, like a centrist district, but the people that are making the descriptions aren't the voters. You know, well, I think it, it allows a justification to send certain types right. of, of, of representatives there. But when I go to the doors, when I say that people that work 40 hours a week shouldn't live in poverty, that makes sense to people. The idea of having health care as a fundamental human right, that the prospects of them being able to go to the doctor consistently, being able to afford their right. bills, those make sense to people, and there have been analogs to candidates like myself, but not in this district. You know, you have to go back maybe to Henry B. Gonzalez, you know, like maybe something like that. I'm not trying to equate myself there, but you do see, you haven't seen a really liberal person, lefty, there. And what you see is that if you give constituents a shot with these ideas, they embrace them. And why is it that only liberal enclaves in the West and the East Coast deserve a type of candidate like me? I'm unabashedly for working people and the most vulnerable. The, the business, in the lobby, the CEOs, the corporations, they have their, their audience. Right. They have their lobby in D.C. The working people need one here. Question. A lot of history, obviously, would be made with Gina, you know, the first openly gay woman of color from Texas, elected to Congress if she made it, first woman to represent Texas's 23rd congressional district. Why isn't it time for those firsts? You know, I, I, I understand that she does represent a lot of firsts, and, you know, I, I think I am honored to be on a stage with her. I think she represents a lot of the beauty of where our country is coming from. Um, I mean, if you even look at the early 2000s, a lot of the Democrats that we really, you know, embrace and, and, and lift up, they weren't for gay marriage. They were for, you know, civil unions. And you see, you know, even, even President Barack Obama evolved on that issue. So 
it's you've seen the the society really push, and I think it, ref, it reflects the the advocacy of the feminist movement, the LGBTQIA movement, um, and I understand that you know ha optically having these type of you know I guess check marks in DC is a good thing, you know optical representation, you know, it represents diversity, but diversity doesn't necessarily represent values. You know, I, there are a lot of people with those type of backgrounds that are in DC that don't support the ideas that I do. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm trying to do is, if we are gonna go on the identity route, well, you know, this district is 70% Latino. I am the only Mexican American in the race. So you can make an argument saying that we are underrepresented in DC as well. But I do think that focusing on those things, you know, allows us to skirt the real nuances of the issues because the problems that are facing America are right in front of us. You know, we, I, I've just been across this district and I've seen extreme poverty, poor infrastructure, poor life outcomes for people, and these people vote. And I really do think that it's not gonna just require, you know, just anybody to do it. We need someone with conviction and actually believes in these ideas. And the platform that I'm running on, I really believe in. Rick, I was just going to ask quickly, you ran a pretty shoestring campaign during the, oh, the, yeah. the pre-March 6th <laughs> yeah. primary. You made it into the runoff over candidates that were uh, at least one that was much more well-funded than you were and, and had much more kind of institutional support. Um, how did your strategy change or not change now that you're in a runoff head-to-head -head against somebody who's uh, received the implicit support of the National Party uh, and is clearly uh, raising a lot of money and is going to have the resources to, to run across the finish line if, if necessary? You know, uh, that's a good question, and I, I found out how much Gina raised uh, when she came on the, the TripCast right. a few weeks ago. It was like $700,000, and I remember just listening to that and thinking, for a teacher, that's 14 years of work. You know, for me as a teacher, without spending anything, to make $700,000, and what's that money going to be spent on? It's going to be spent on mailers and superficial ads and a really passive interaction with the constituents. And I think it's just such a grotesque waste of money, especially when I'm seeing people that could really use that money for other things. But you know, money in politics is a, uh, is a real thing. Uh, my whole goal was to get into the runoff. You know, I really, you know, I was part of that Bernie Sanders movement, the 2015 primary. I saw that there was a little over 30,000 people that voted for a Democratic Socialist in a, a supposedly conservative district. So I knew that those people were motivated. They understood the context of races like mine. And I knew if I communicated them with the language of Bernie and the ideas that they believe in and got them out to vote for this person, you know, that they'd be there for me. And, uh, on that shoestring budget, I, I, you know, I, and it's been out in papers, but I mailed to about 3,000 people that I coded for age and, and maybe in places that Bernie did well in precincts. And that then was I, a targeted effort. Yeah, yeah, it was a targeted effort there. And then I also knocked on doors in working class communities that I knew that my opponents weren't walking. And that was like in Hondo, that was southeast side of San Antonio. And then, like I said, I doubled up in Frio, LaSalle County, because there were some countywide races with Trevino there. And, you know, name recognition is yeah, a big right. deal. So, you know, I, I just tried to double up on those kind of places. And, and again, working people, when I go up to their doors and start talking about health care as a fundamental human right and a Medicare for all deal, the idea of not paying premiums anymore and having an insurance plan that will include vision and dental makes a lot of sense for people. And a lot of people take that deal. And, um, you know, right now what I'm doing is I, I have scaled up. Ever since the DCCC actually jumped into the race, you know, it's been... It's been awesome for me. I've just seen a, a, a good windfall of cash. Now, relative to Gina's race, it's not that much. And I'm probably going to report, you know, probably at the end of this, something from this little timeline, a little close to $15,000. But that's enough that I need, I think, to reach and to communicate with the voters that I need to. And uh, my voters are motivated, and I think they're going to be there in the, 
in May 22nd. Great. Well, thanks for communicating with us here. We're so pleased to have you, Rick, uh, and we will see you out on the trail. Sure. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you. All right, Alexa, you're up. Good to see you. Alexa Uda is going to join us. Um, Before she does, I'd just like to quickly thank another TribCast sponsor, Walmart. Walmart employs nearly 24,000 veterans in Texas and will hire any honorably discharged veteran as of Memorial Day 2013. Hi, Alexa. Hello. Thanks for joining us. So um, ahead of a Supreme, of Supreme Court arguments next week, I wanted you to tell us something you did so well on the, uh, in the Tribune this week, the curious tale of how a, quote, fluke win in a Corpus Christi congressional race curtailed the voting clout of the region's Hispanics for years and years to come. So Blake Ferenthold's um, CD27 district down in Corpus Christi um, was, re- he really won it in a fluke win and had long been represented by a Democrat since, re- since it was created in 1982. Um, the timing of that win was perfect enough because it was just right before uh, Republicans started, were going to redraw the state's political maps. Right. And in doing that, ended up basically turning his district on its head um, in a way that the court found- um, Literally on its head. Literally yeah. on its head. Um, <laughs> In a way that the court found diluted the votes of Hispanic voters in Nuestas County, um, you know, we'd sort of walk through readers exactly how they did it, looking at the areas of the district that were pulled in and pulled out. And really, the, the main takeaway is that this really helped set the stage for the Supreme Court case um, that's headed to the high court next Tuesday. You were headed along with them, correct? Yes. yes. <laughs> in which, you know, the, the state is defending maps that it you know, initially drew back in 2011 and seven years later, we're still fighting over them. Mm-hmm. So can we step back for one second? How do we start by defining that election a fluke? Well, if you if you I look mean, they back, voted for him, right? Sure. Right. Yeah. If you look back at the, the results, that district had been a solid, solidly Democratic district. It was created in 1982, represented by the same guy since then. Right. 20 um, years, 30 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there Solomon were Ortiz senior, right? Sure. Yeah. And there were several elections in which he was uncontested. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was a solid district. 2010 was obviously a huge GOP wave. Um, the Republicans picked up almost two dozen seats in the legislature and right. they managed to flip this district that mm-hmm. I'm not sure was on anyone's mm-hmm. radar. Well, they did this nationally. This was the Tea Party election. Right. Right. So, and yeah. so couldn't or wouldn't the Texas legislature have drawn those same maps anyway without his election? Or did they need his particular election in order to make those new maps? Well, what the testimony um, and evidence in the case has found is that map drawers intentionally redrew it to protect Blake Ferenthold. Just to protect him. So yeah. they didn't have their, so they might not have made those changes for that particular district if not for wanting to protect him going forward. Well, right. and also right. for the fact that they elected all of those Republicans to the Texas legislature. They came into right. the 2010 elections with a more or less even legislature. It was 76 Republicans and 74 Democrats. And they came out and the Republicans had a, you know, something on the order of a 90, and I have numbers in front of me, but something on the order of a 90 to 60 advantage. And that's the group that drew the maps for Blake Farenthold and everybody else. Right. So what is the Supreme Court specifically, you know, set to decide and sort of who's arguing on both sides of this? So it's a complicated case because the Supreme Court left open the question whether they even have the authority to take up the case. Mm -hmm. So as part of oral arguments, first they're going to discuss that. Some of the lawyers on the plaintiff side voting in civil rights groups representing voters of color um, actually think that a majority of the oral arguments might end up being spent on that instead Mm -hmm. of the actual violations in the maps. So that's one part of it. The other part is whether the court, the 
lower court in San Antonio's ruling that the 2013 maps, which were enacted by the legislature then after they were redrawn by the court in 2012, um, you know, continue, continue to intentionally discriminate against voters of color. It's a complicated case because there was a 2011 map, there was a court interim map that the legislature then adopted. The state is saying, well, how can we be found to have intentionally discriminated if we just adopted the court's map? The court is saying, well, we told you that wasn't a permanent map and that that wasn't a final decision on those lines. And so it's a really complicated case and the results of which could be even more complicated. There are so many outcomes. Right. So it doesn't need to be like cut or dry one way or the other. It could They could say, you know, we this stands and this doesn't stand and any like variation. It's like walking basically. in in the middle of the ninth season of The Sopranos and going, well, what <laughs> what's happening here? Well, it's the sort of decision that come June we're going to freak out because it's going to take us longer than we'd like it to figure <laughs> yeah. out. We're trying to figure exactly out the answer. Right. Yeah. Well, do, is it? A, it's, it seems like a strange uh, irony that this same guy that they fought so hard to protect is, you know, in addition to like wearing embarrassing footed pajamas with Playboy models, which he was wearing. <laughs> well, that was a known thing. That was a story the first time he got elected, back to the fluke election. You know, that right. would have killed a candidate in a normal year. But sure. he's also turned out to be someone who's been a major liability for the party. Uh, Ross, I mean, tell us a little bit about the hot water that he continues to find himself well, in. Well, he, he had a sexual harassment allegation from a member of his staff in Congress and settled that. I'm cutting out a lot of details here, <laughs> but settled that with an $84,000 payment that came from a congressional fund. Nobody else in Congress had used a fund like that for a thing like this, and it was approved, and then it came back up, and after they reconsidered, uh, it became clear that they were gonna demand the money back, and it looks like he resigned in the face of that and in the face of uh, a pending ethics investigation by the House Ethics Committee that stemmed from all of this, um, and they were about to release a report, so he resigned rather than have us all read that report out loud in the news. A, a guy worth fighting for. Story. Well, and the, yeah. the funny yeah, right. thing about that one is that they that district now stretches up all the way into Central Texas. I mean, it, it goes up a, up till Bastrop, and I think the Travis County line. Um, right. But they redrew it that way, and the the violation against Hispanic voters is because they wanted to keep Nueces County in because that's where Blake Farrell lived. Right. And so at the end of all of this, the violations, if the Supreme Court sides with the plaintiffs, um, they will have found that the violations that they created in that area were for someone who has since resigned. Right. So if you were forecasting the way this is going to go, do you have any potential, <laughs> any, you want to play this out for us at all? I mean, I can, t I think it would be Say interesting. No, Alexis, it would be interesting if, it yeah. would be interesting if, I think the question of jurisdiction is the most interesting part because without preclearance in voting rights litigation, the reason this litigation has been drawn out so long is because we don't have preclearance anymore, um, where before states had to get approval from the DOJ or from a federal court to enact political maps. That's gone now, and that's why this has gone on so long. And so the question of jurisdiction, I think, is probably the most interesting, aside from the individual violations, because there's a question as to whether this would open the door to future litigation on the redistricting front, where you could challenge, you could appeal to the Supreme Court even before there's a final injunction at the lower court, and that's just going to be a mess moving forward. Um, it would create really long litigation timelines and really costly litigation. So I, that's the thing I'm going to... As opposed to the current case, which started in 2011 and is still going in 2018. I love that Alexa is now the resident expert on all this stuff, and I don't have to ask you anymore. <laughs> but I am going to ask office? you, yeah, Ross, I am going to ask you, uh, we got news this last week that former U.S. Rep Steve Stockman was found guilty of nearly two dozen felonies 
feel what like did, the police reporter for the Tribune. Yeah, all of a yeah, I know. What, what did he do? What happened to What happened to Stockman? <laughs> I know. All these members of Congress, former members of Congress. So what uh, did he do? Stockman is accused basically of looting a couple of uh, rich donors who gave a million and a half to his campaigns and things. And he was indicted on 24 felonies. He was convicted of 23 felonies. He says he will... Not a good ratio. <laughs> yeah, not a good ratio. Uh, he says he will appeal it. But they put him into custody right now because they said you're a flight risk and, you know, while your appeals are pending, we're going to keep you in jail. Kind of an ignominious end to a political career that was kind of bumpy yeah. anyway. He had two terms in Congress. They were not contiguous. Uh, he lost a Senate race to John Cornyn. Um, he's always been an outsider and kind of an outcast and also apparently, according to a federal, grand, a federal jury, a, a thief. Yeah. Uh, how could a former U.S. congressman, easily identifiable, be a flight risk? Like, where would he go? Well, you know, this the is... The Bahamas? Uh, you know, you can, you can leave. You can go to the Bahamas. You can go to, you know, someplace else. There was a famous uh, case in Texas involving a former Supreme Court justice named Don Yarbrough who went off to the Caribbean and um, eluded this kind of um, trap for years and then finally came back and, and got grabbed. My favorite part about this case is the role that Ryan Patrick, the son of Lieutenant Governor Dan yeah, Patrick, was, yeah, played um, in it. He uh, lost his election. He was, a, he was a judge in Harris County and lost his election in 2016 in a wave election and, um, in Harris County and was subsequently appointed to be the U.S. attorney for this part of the state. And he was the U.S. attorney sitting in charge of the prosecution in uh, Stockman's case and was sitting in court when, when the verdicts came down. And gave some statement afterward, basically, right. about, you know, people shouldn't, people shouldn't be crooks with the, Should you know. not have done that. <laughs> right. Right. My favorite part about the case is some of the crazy spending. I mean, uh, yeah, there was, there like was a, a dishwasher. <laughs> what was the other thing? Yeah, it was, was a very sort of weird kennel. list of, uh, you know, it's not how I would have used a million and I know, a half none of that looked like yeah. stuff that he actually like really enjoyed, right. you know? Right, bought mac and cheese with the whole thing. Right. Indeed. All right, well, just a reminder, if you're tuning in on social media, you can send questions our way. Patrick, we got some well, long-anticipated, maybe long-anticipated for us, Ted Cruz fundraising numbers this week. What did they show? How far did Beto actually outraise Cruz after all? Yeah, so uh, Cruz ended up raising a little under half of what O'Rourke raised uh, depending on which numbers specifically you're looking at. But the fact remains that uh, O'Rourke uh, massively outraised Cruz. Um, I think this is the uh, fifth of the last four reporting periods um, where that has happened. Um, and as we talked about previously, the $6.7 million that O'Rourke raised in, in the first quarter uh, is really a staggering amount. Um, you know, looks like a record for Texas looks like a record nationally for this mm -hmm. reporting period for other Democratic Senate candidates or any other Senate candidate from either party. Um, Cruz definitely stepped up his fundraising. Yeah, it and wasn't the point, shabby, right? The 3.2 I mean, million uh, that his campaign said he raised during that period uh, is a is a is certainly a, a healthy amount and a strong amount, but he's dealing with someone in O'Rourke who just has uh, a tremendous uh, fundraising strength, and as we've talked about before, tremendous fundraising strength among these low-dollar donors. Um, I think it was 140,000, more than 140,000 individual donors for that quarter. Um, what do we know about how much of Cruz's money is PAC money versus, I mean, so we know there, there's no PAC money at all going to Beto, correct? Right. O'Rourke has, has sworn off PAC money and uh, it's, you know, his FEC reports and Cruz's are thousands of pages long. They're all right. on paper. You got to download a, a big PDF file. And so it's a little difficult to always verify that claim, but we'll take 
you know, his word for it. There's no PAC money in there. Well, um, and Cruz hadn't found yeah, it yet either. Yeah, Cruz does accept PAC money. Um, what, what this fundraising quarter actually brought to light, and this ha this isn't new, but Cruz's campaign, when they release his fundraising numbers, they count uh, his money raised and cash on hand across three allied groups. And they've been doing this since the beginning, but it's starting to get a little more scrutiny uh, because of how uh, intense the money race has gotten here. Uh, so when Cruz says he raised, when Cruz's campaign says he raised $3.2 million for the quarter, uh, they're counting how much money was raised by his reelection account, which is Cruz for Senate. They're counting how much money was raised uh, by a leadership pack called the, the Jobs, Freedom, and Security Pack, And they're counting uh, how much money was raised by a joint fundraising committee called the Ted Cruz Victory Committee. That victory committee raises money and then distributes it to those two other groups we just described. And so it's kind of a, uh, to people, uh, you know, are looking to make an apples to apples comparison, they, you know, you could arguably look just exclusively at Cruz's reelection campaign and how much he's raising and how much cash on hand he has in that account and compare it to O'Rourke's reelection campaign because O'Rourke only has that one group that he's counting. And of course, if you make that comparison, uh, apples to apples, uh, some people would say apples to apples. Uh, you know, Cruz raised less than he raised, I think, closer to 2.7 million. So an even wider disparity. Uh, and in fact, the award campaign, in, in claiming in, in a press release that they had more cash on hand, they looked at that cash on hand total in the Cruz reelection campaign in, in isolation. Obviously, Cruz's campaign is counting their cash on hand for all three groups. And if you do it that way. Cruz still has more cash on hand. Right. So there's like this uh, vigorous uh, campaign, uh, f yeah, numbers game going on right now. If, uh, you're, if yeah. you're a challenger in a race like this, if they're talking about you, this is all to the good. And, and you know, the last guy who did this was Cruz himself. Mm -hmm. You don't have to raise as much money as the incumbent. You have to be part of the conversation so that people look at it and say, you know, I have this incumbent who I like or don't like, but I also have an alternative. Uh, Cruz may be able to survive that. He's pretty popular in polling, particularly with Republican voters. But Beto's getting a lot of attention out of this even before he spends any of that money. Right. Patrick, since I have you here, what's the latest on uh, Valdez White Land? Oh, man. <laughs> it's the most exciting Thrilling. race right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this race has been, I think, relatively static. I mean, you know, White has been looking for an advantage. He's basically been trying to present himself, and this is not exclusive to the runoff period, but he's been trying to present himself as the substance candidate, uh, which, at least probably in his estimation, is in contrast with uh, Valdez, who's been dinged for not appearing, uh, you know, well-versed on the issues and whatnot. And so he's been rolling out some, some policy plans. He announced a jobs plan earlier this month. Uh, just this morning, he announced kind of an education plan. Um, and I think he's, he's hoping that the attention he gets from that, um, you know, and, and the image of him as the, the kind of, as I said, substance candidate is the way to go in this in this primary runoff. Um, and he is still looking to get her on a debate stage one on one. Which, right. What's the latest uh, on that? It seems you know, like maybe I mean, there was a little think, movement. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether it, there's one that's going to happen. The bottom line is, you know, her campaign and she, I believe herself, has said she's open to debating him. Um, but right now there's not a hard commitment. And obviously time is ticking and White would really like a, a hard commitment on that. Who do you think um, wins on the debate stage? Who I think wins on the debate stage. Yeah. It, it's hard to tell Whatever because we have on TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, it's, it's honestly hard to make predictions because there just has not been a lot of one-to-one -one engagement mm -hmm. between these these two candidates. Um, clearly, if you go off of uh, what the newspaper editorial boards have said, these are the newspaper editorial boards who've had them both in and asked them the same questions and been able to make probably a better direct comparison between them than I can as a reporter sitting here today. Um, you know, they say that White comes across as more prepared or she comes across as less prepared. So mm -hmm. I guess you'd have to give him the edge. Um, but, you know, she's had time to, to uh, 
beef upper policy uh, knowledge. And, um, you know, I think that she was obviously aware of some of the negative press surrounding those editorials. And so um, I'd be fascinated to see what, what a debate between the two of them would look like. And um, I've said this to other people, but it, it, sometimes when you have this debate over debates, it's like kind mm -hmm. of a media-created thing. Yeah. But, you know, Just because we to, really right, want the debate. Exactly, or, yeah. or it's created and pushed by one candidate, and certainly White is, is driving that. Uh, but you do hear from Democratic activists and Democratic clubs uh, that they want to see this happen just because it's been such a short primary. I remember these guys got in late last year. Uh, Lupe didn't start campaigning really until January. So just because it's been a short primary, because they just haven't had a lot of opportunities to compare them one-to-one uh, -one well, that they want to see a debate. And it's not like a debate is going to move the needle in a wide... I mean, this is a primary runoff for the Democratic Party. Turnout right. is going to be minuscule. So it's really those activists that right. you're really trying to target anyway. Is a debate really the most effective way to do that? I think White's just trying to get oxygen. The governor totally. has done a really good job of making this about him and Valdez. He clearly wants Valdez instead of yeah, White in the race easy ahead. Foil. And he's talking about her and not talking about White. And White's back there behind the fence, jumping up, trying to get some attention, and hasn't been so far. Um, you know... His, a debate is maybe his you know, last chance or one of his last chances to get enough attention to even be in that runoff. Yeah, my favorite thing this time of year is to watch your email inbox fill up with consultants for underdog candidates saying, hey, Texas Tribune, who you asked my opponent whether they'll debate me? Right. You know, they're all right. just looking for oxygen. So, uh, Alexa, I did not warn you I was going to ask you about this, but Andrew has asked a question on social media. Not Andrew White. <laughs> well, maybe. maybe. Actually, I don't know. Yeah. Andy from Houston, yeah, first-time right. caller. How would the census citizenship question affect Republican seats in Texas? Um, it doesn't affect the, this litigation, but it could have a huge effect on the next go-around, which would start um, during the 2021st legis legislature, because if there is an undercount because of the census, which is what a lot of folks who are experts in this area are fearing, that affects everyone. It doesn't just affect Hispanics. It doesn't just affect Democrats. It affects the total population in the state. And that's the number that we base on when we draw congressional right. districts. So we're projected to gain at least three. The population of immigrants in Houston alone is just about the size of a congressional district. So, I mean, that really sort of puts into context what's at risk here. And, you know, that also means that we would get less electoral college votes than the ones we're projected to get. So the the beyond the congressional and redistricting side of it, obviously, is the money side. Communities depend on um, their counts in the census for millions of dollars of funding. I mean, anything from your school to your legislative district to your congressional district, I mean, it would be felt pretty widespread, and the Republicans will also feel it in their districts and in their representation overall. Obviously, they're pretty well-placed to continue their majority in the legislature. So if they're going to lose districts, they might keep their majority, but they're going to have fewer than they might have had. All right. Uh, well, I'm seeing a little bit of on social media of this uh, new Quinnipiac poll. Is that how you pronounce that word? Quinnipiac. Quinnipiac. U.S. Senate race in Texas, too close to call, with 47% for Republican incumbent Ted Cruz, 44% for Beto O'Rourke. Margin of error. Margin of error. Three or four points, something like that. Yeah, 44 points. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Don't know yet, so you're going to have to look. I'm sure we'll have a story up on that shortly. So, all right, well, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, guess what? We've got something new for you, an audio news brief that shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. Learn more at trib.it slash thebriefpodcast. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Holdsworth Center, Texas A&M, and Walmart, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Ross, Patrick, Alexa, Rick, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas Talking. Texas Talking. Texas Talking. Texas talking.
Yeah. Yeah, 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 right. right. Yeah. Is that Anchorman? Which movie That's was that? That's Anchorman yeah. 1, man.